So let's go ahead and open with prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for uh, our time once again to gather for corporate worship today. We thank you for the blessing of uh, saving us and bringing us into local churches for our good and to be a display of your glory together as we, uh, as we love Christ and seek to follow him in our life. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ who pours out uh, your love for us in Christ into our hearts so that we know your love for us, that we cry out to you, Abba Father, and that we respond with love in return. And we thank you for the way that the Spirit washes us with the water of the Word and sanctifies us by the truth of it. And we pray that even today as we uh, study your Word together here in this class and also as we hear the Word sung and read and taught uh, in the corporate worship, that you would be with us to cause your truth to renew our minds and that we would be humbled, that we would be instructed, that we would be growing in our knowledge of you and our knowledge of your will, and that we would um, really be transformed by it. We think of Paul's words in Romans 12, that we would be transformed through the renewal of our mind, and that's what we pray for even today. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so in our day, we hear so much about this subject that sometimes it gets tiresome to once again think about these things, but if you're going to teach a class on the doctrine of man and sin, this is part of the doctrine of man, and we must address it, especially in our day, that we would be thinking clearly about these things, so... So we're going to walk through what the Bible teaches about marriage and sexuality uh, this morning, and hopefully this will be helpful to you. I want to talk first about the origin of marriage. So if someone would turn, let's turn together to Genesis 2, and beginning in verse 18 all the way through verse 25, if someone would read that, Genesis 2, 18 through 25, just to lay the groundwork in this such important text that we have. In Genesis 2. So if someone read. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What is so important about this in our day is that for the first time really in, in, modern, in, in our modern era, we're beginning to hear people say that marriage itself is simply a human construction. That somewhere along the way, Human beings invented marriage, and, and that there are certain things inherent to marriage that are oppressive, right? 
And so there would be liberation that would come through at least redefining marriage into something that is more to our liking. But what the Bible teaches us is the truth that has been known and accepted throughout human history for the most part is that marriage is not a human invention, but a divine creation. And that's what we see in this text. Um, So, first of all, we see that God created mankind for marriage. So, if you were to go back into the first chapter and see that God made man, male and female, you begin to get a hint that there's a diversity of gender. And then in chapter 2, you begin to see that that gender is not just differences, but differences that are complementary, that there is a suitableness to the genders, that they're, they're suited for one another. So they're created with a diversity of gender so that they might be suited to come together, right? And so you see that in verse, uh, first of all, in verse 18 uh, of chapter 2, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, I will make a helper fit for or suitable for him. And then in verse 22, you see that when he creates the woman, he brings her to the man. And so there's clearly this idea that the gendered humanity were designed to, were designed in such a way that they would be suitable for one another and designed to come together in marriage. And then, of course, God himself superintends the first marriage between the first man and the first woman. And so there, right there in verse 22, in the, he sets Adam up for this, right? He brings all the creatures to Adam so that Adam would see that none of them are a suitable partner for him. And then he creates the woman, brings her to the man, And the man recognizes that she is suitable for him. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then you see that the marriage happens in verse 24, because all of a sudden, instead of just man and woman, you have man and wife, right? The man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so God superintends the first marriage. And then notice that verse 24 is actually a a generalization, isn't it? It's actually not describing simply the first marriage and saying that it happened. It's saying, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So you see that. The clear implication of that verse is that the first marriage was to really become the pattern for subsequent marriages between men and women, right? So here we see, where did marriage come from? It came from God. He invented it. He created men and women for marriage, such that when they come together in marriage, they are fit for one another He superintended the first marriage and established it as a pattern for all marriages going forward. Okay, so this is very important because it also shows that if you're going to mess around with marriage and just decide, you know what, let's change it. What are you what are you doing? Right. You're rebelling against God and his divinely created institution for humanity. And you're going to find yourself 
running against the word of God, running against reality, right? The very fact that men and women are actually created suitable for one another in marriage. Okay, let's look at the definition of marriage. This is something that is intuitive to us, but it's also important to think through some of these details so that we make sure that it's clear in our mind what marriage is. Okay, so first of all, marriage is a union, right? It's a coming together. And you see that right there in verses 24 and 25. And it's not just a coming together of any two persons, is it? There's specifics in the text. There is a man and his wife, right? A man and a woman. And all of those things, you know, like I said, they've just been intuitive to us. They've been intuitive to humanity going back into recorded history and beyond. But in our day, as we are, are, we're taking our human autonomy and rebellion to whole new levels, um, we are trying to redefine these things. But the scripture is very clear, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, marriage is a union between one man and one woman. Now, in addition to that, what kind of union is this? Well, first of all, it is a physical, that is a sexual union. So, we'll talk more about this later, but when verse 24 says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, that at least in part, I'm not saying there's not Something more to it, something almost mystical about the union, at least in part, that is a reference to sexual union. Because we'll see that Paul interprets it that way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, So it's a euphemistic way of saying that a man and his wife come together, and part of what that, how that union is expressed is through physical union, which is a reference to sexual union. And then also, it is a personal union, a covenantal union. Now, in some ways, this, you know, we we think of marriage this way. Why, like, if you go to a wedding, uh, what makes you think this is a personal covenantal union? What makes you think that? The vows, right? This has been a long-standing tradition. Why do we go? Why don't they just do it on their own? And they're, you know, just two kids come together and say, let's vow to one another just on their own with no one else. Why would that be, in some ways, inappropriate? Witnesses, right? Yeah, accountability. Now, in one sense, there's always one ultimate witness to every covenant union, right? But there's an... there's a propriety to it being an assembly of friends and family to bear witness to this union. By the way, this is one reason why I would say that it's fairly clear that Christians should not attend a wedding between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Because part of what you're doing is you are bearing witness to this you're participating in the ceremony. And so it's not 
actually true that you're just going and having no part in it. So it's a covenantal union. But where do we see this in the Bible? Well, there's one text that people go to, and that is Malachi 2, where the Lord rebukes Israel for divorcing the wife of their the wives of their youth. And in Malachi 2:14 it says, "But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So there's one sense in which it's implied all the way through Scripture that there is a a personal commitment to one another uh, that is solemn before God, but it's explicit here that it is a covenantal union. So it's a union between a man, a woman, a physical, that is sexual union, and a covenantal or personal union. And we should add that it is intended to be a lifelong union. So you remember that in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9, Jesus has this dispute with the Pharisees where they come to him and they try to, I think what they're seeking to do most likely, although it's not explicit in the text that they're doing this, but it seems that they're trying to draw Jesus into a traditional rabbinical debate so that he would be forced to take a side. And if by doing that, they could draw him into controversy and get people, uh, get him to take a controversial position that would lead to hostility against him that they could use to trap him. So if you look in verses 3 through 9, if someone would read those, verses 3 through 9, Matthew 19. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. This is a very interesting text. If you go and read the rabbinical literature, which I have not done. I get it secondhand from other scholars. You'll see that, as was was true with so many things in the Old Covenant law, the rabbis debated Deuteronomy 24, 1 and following, where Moses talked about giving your wife a certificate of divorce and sending her away if you saw some uncleanness in her. And the, the rabbis debated what was that Uncleanness. What was the proper grounds for sending your wife away? And there were liberal rabbis who said it could be anything. It could be she burned the food. And so many rabbis did. Went through many, many divorces and many wives, right? So it was basically a way of saying you could divorce your wife for any cause. And then more conservative rabbis said, no, it had to be something more serious like adultery, right? Well, they're trying to draw Jesus into this debate. And he says, uh-uh, um, let's go back to the very beginning. And so he says, God from the beginning, and he's quoting Genesis 1, 28, he made them male and female. And then he quotes from Genesis 2, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says there's a union there that God has not intended to be broken. And they say, whoa, 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 you know, Jesus, what about Deuteronomy 24? And he says, yeah, because of your sin, God regulated your divorce so that you wouldn't be divorcing women willy-nilly, and that leads to all kinds of destruction for them. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses imposed this regulation. But that is not what God intended for marriage. He said, from the beginning it was not so. And then he says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples are shocked. Verse 10, they said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's not, is it better not to marry? Right? They cannot fathom a society in which a husband would not be permitted to divorce his wife without committing adultery. And obviously there's an exception clause in there which we'll talk about. But So it's intended to be a lifelong union, not to be broken. That was God's intention. Okay, now Romans chapter 7, this is where I'd add lifelong. Because there are some that would say that your union to your husband, to your spouse, is not even broken by death, right? It's eternal. But that is not the case. Romans chapter 7, um, he talks about marriage. And actually, let's read beginning in verse 1, 1 through 3. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by, her, by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. So this is why I say lifelong, right? Permanent. God intended to be permanent, but in the sense of lifelong. This is why it's appropriate that the old Anglican prayer book would say, till death do us part. All right. So, any questions on the definition of marriage? Okay. Divorce and remarriage. Let me hit on this briefly. I say briefly because, there, gosh, there is so much that could be said on this. And so many, well, what abouts, right? And there's just no way I'm going to be able to get into all those issues. And, and not all of them are easy. This is one of the most difficult issues that ethical issues that you work through as a pastor, you know, because oftentimes you will have people in the church whose marriages fall apart or people that want to join your church that have been divorced and remarried maybe even multiple times and you have to deal with this. Yeah, Katrina. Kind of rolling back just a little bit on oh, yeah. the other one. Um, it's kind of indicating in scripture that it's the infidelity of the wife that permitted a divorce. Is it was it also infidelity on the husband's part that authorized divorce? Because it's the man yeah. that's giving the certificate to the woman. Right. So in, in the Old Testament, was that only if the wife was unfaithful, or was it also if the man was unfaithful? Yeah, I think his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount indicates that it goes both ways. And I would say that intuitively we understand that it would go both ways. It's just simply that in that society, it was virtually unthinkable that a woman would divorce her husband uh, for socioeconomic reasons. For instance, a wife without a husband was typically destitute. 
And it, it was a society in which it was very common for men to have mistresses and all kinds of stuff without it being... So I think he's just speaking into a cultural context in which it would have been so uncommon, even unthinkable for a woman to divorce her husband in that day. It's not to say that it never happened, especially in the upper echelons of society. Uh, But in Matthew 5, I think he actually does show that it goes both ways. And we'll look at that text in a little bit, so hopefully that will um, address it. Okay, divorce and remarriage. Let me just say, first of all, that God intended marriage, intends marriage to be lifelong, broken only by death. And therefore, the Bible says he hates divorce. What's interesting is you guys have all heard that phrase, God hates divorce. Uh, If you look at Malachi 2.16, and and if you have an ESV translation, which is the translation that we use here in our uh, church, it says, For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So he obviously is saying that the Lord condemns divorce here and judges it. But this is the verse where it's supposed to say God hates divorce. Now, if you look at your footnote there, you see the little footnote next to his wife, but divorces her. It says, oh, down, it gives you a footnote. And down below it says, the Hebrew says, who hates and divorces. Now it's indicating that there's some ambiguity here in how to translate the Hebrew. But what's interesting is that if you look if you were to compare versions, so does anyone have a New American Standard here or any other modern version? Keith, what does it say in the New American? For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Right. And him who covers the garment with wrong. And that would be how the New American, New Revised Standard and both new versions of the NIV, they all translate it that way as God hates divorce. It's just that there is some degree of ambiguity about how to translate the Hebrew, but most likely it actually does say there that God hates divorce. And we understand because that's how it was from the beginning. He intended it to be a lifelong covenant union. And how does God feel about being faithful, right? He himself is perfectly faithful. He wants his people to be faithful to their commitments. And so it makes sense that he would hate when a husband or a wife breaks their vow to this most sacred vow to their um, spouse. It doesn't mean that there are not any cases in which divorce might be permitted by God. But it's never a good thing. It's never his intention for marriage. Okay, Here I would like to argue that God does permit divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality. Um, Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. This is the text I was talking about. Matthew 5, 31 and following. Would someone read those verses? Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Now it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It's interesting that he says, makes her commit adultery. Why do you think, why do you think he says that? I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. 
Why do you think he says that? Well, if it's a cultural thing, it sounds like men have the privilege to do whatever they wanted. So what is going to happen if you put away your wife with a certificate of divorce? In that day, she doesn't go out and get a job, right? She doesn't go down to the... She's, she's not gonna, I mean, some may resort to that, Carrie, but most likely, what's she going to do for the sake of her livelihood? She's going to remarry, right? <laughs> Suck it up, yeah. Right. She's going to remarry. She's going to try to find another husband to support her financially, right? Yeah, but that's a huge right. issue, too. Like, who is a man is going to take on a woman? That's what she's saying. That's what he's saying. Yeah, so I'm, I'm saying that he's, Jesus is saying something radical here. He's saying that, hey, men, when you put your wife away with a certificate of divorce, and she, out of desperation, marries another man because otherwise she's destitute, you're making her commit adultery because he's saying that except on the ground of sexual morality, remarriage after divorce is adultery. Right, um, but it still sounds weird in the fact that it's like what woman, knowing her situation, is going to do that? They're going to stay loyal because they don't really get a choice because they're going to be stuck no matter what. Right. But the man gets to... to in cultural perspectives, it's right. totally wrong. Right. But it sounds like they get to... to they do. They did in that in that culture. They would put they would put their wife away. Typically, the wife would not leave the husband. Right. Yeah. But it, the certificate of divorce was because of immorality, and it sounds like it was more commonly done by the husband catching the wife. Well, yeah, and see, I think uh, the Deuteronomy passage that where it talks about the certificate of divorce. It's somewhat ambiguous. It says, in fact, if we look at that, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, this is why there was a debate among the rabbis, because listen to this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in, it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled. So what is happening here? Moses is regulating the, what men would typically do in that, you know, I found some indecency in my wife, put her away. He's saying, and, and he's not, so Moses is not in any way condoning this behavior. He's saying, men who do this cannot then do this, right? He's trying to keep them together. Right. So he's putting, he's putting some boundaries on this to avoid oppression, certain kinds of oppression on the woman. It, I would say this is very similar to the laws regarding slavery. Slavery in some ways, you know, we look at it so askance in our day because people who are impoverished have so many ways of getting food and money. But in the ancient world, poverty could very well mean death, right? There was no social safety net. There was no welfare, food stamps, wick. On and on and on. So oftentimes when people were impoverished, what would they do? 
They would sell themselves into slavery. And so, and, and that was actually a way for them to survive, right? Now, in no way is that a good thing. It's all a result of the curse, not what God intended. But, but in the Old Covenant law, there, he didn't, God didn't say abolish slavery. He regulated it to prevent certain kinds of oppression and whatnot. I think something similar is going on here with divorce. Not in any way condoning this behavior, but putting in place regulations that would prevent certain kinds of oppressive behavior. And <laughs> right, right, and there would be actually other things, like you said, there would be uh, times of which he said they were to release people from slavery, etc. Why do you think he didn't put any restrictions directed towards the man? Well, I you mean in. Um, Deuteronomy or here in Matthew? In Deuteronomy. I think it was directed toward the man. He's saying the man cannot go back and take a woman who's he put away. He can't then take her again after she's been with another man. Right. That seems so like minimal. Don't take her back. Right. Big deal. Right. It's it's a minimal restriction. It's to it's it's intended to regulate just the grossest forms of of. Yeah, it's, I mean, so Janelle, I'm, again, I'm not saying that this is all, obviously God didn't approve of any of, any divorce from the beginning, right? Right, I think what was happening is there were certain types of behavior that were going on that he says, no. Could he have done more? Yeah, but he, in his wisdom, he chose not to add other regulations in. And that was Paul's point. It's because it was a culturistic thing for them to do, is take on many wives. Right. He's saying not. Moses is saying, not, right. this is not how we're, how God intended it. Yes, yeah, so the, the regulations in chapter 5 are actually directed primarily toward the man. Because he's saying, men, when you do this, willy-nilly send your wives away with certificates of divorce, thinking, well, Moses said I could. You end up making her commit adultery because what's she going to do for survival? She's going to go and be remarried. And then he says, and you too, when you remarry after that kind of unlawful divorce, you too commit adultery. And I have to actually consider that this is supposedly, hopefully, someone that is a believer. So they are going to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. I mean, at least in the, in the in our perspective, you know, like obviously Old Testament's different, but so there is on the man, there is some amount of conviction, hopefully, that they're going to do what's right. Right. Well, I just I think he, he's basically saying Jesus is inter, intervening in the lawless behavior of Jewish men who use Deuteronomy twenty four to practice rampant divorce, and he's coming in and saying it's all wrong, it's all adulterous. Okay. He's saying you should not be divorcing your wives. The only permission that he gives for divorce is what? Sexual immorality. And by the way, that is like Deuteronomy 24 when he says, Moses permitted you to divorce because of your hardness of heart. So even that, even when there is a permission to divorce, it's not a good thing, right? It's still the result of sin. (laughs) So he's saying, he's he's coming in and uh, breaking up the oppressive and wrong behavior of your average Jewish male who would have practiced 
divorce. And it led to destructive and oppressive effects upon upon the women in that society, is basically what he's saying. And it's dishonoring to God. So, so Matthew 5, and it's repeated in, Ma- in Matthew 19, does give one exception, except for sexual immorality. And the reason I say sexual morality and not adultery is because that's what the text says. There is a Greek word for adultery, moikeia. That's not the word used here. It's a broader word. Porneia, sexual immorality. And why do you think he uses the broader word rather than the more narrow word? I mean, sexual adultery is sexual immorality, but why would he use the more the broader word? To include men in it. Okay, well, because I think there is a broader range of sexual immorality that may be grounds for divorce, right? This is where all that questions come in, right? Well, we can talk afterwards, but I, I think that we, we need to just see that on the grounds of violation of covenant through sexual immorality, he, he's saying divorce could be permitted. Jesus said, if you look upon... I mean, right. He broadened that out. This is where we ha- yeah. This is where the ethical details have to be worked out. Okay, well, what do what kinds of pornea could be right? And this is where I think it's fairly clear that obviously he's thinking of things like adultery, but other kinds of uh, more gross sexual morality might also be in that context. In fact, God himself describes himself in Jeremiah 3.8 as putting Israel away for her adultery and writing her a certificate of divorce in Jeremiah 3.8. It's interesting because they violated their covenant with him. So it does seem that there is a permission. Now, does that mean that it's required? No. And in fact, God's own persistence with his adulterous spouse indicates that our first impulse should be to seek to work through these things, seek to hold the marriage together. Right? It may be wrong in the reference, but wasn't it Hosea that wound up, was told to go marry yeah. the harlot? And, mm-hmm. and it's the example of, of right. God pursuing us over right. and over and over again, even though uh, our right. fidelity uh, and, and our abandonment of Him and our yeah. lust for idle things. Right, so God's own faithfulness to us despite our infidelities to Him, I think gives us the most fundamental impetus for us as Christians should be to seek to be merciful and forgive and reconcile the infidelities of our spouse. It's, it's just that there is, that sexual morality is a grounds for a, what you call a lawful divorce. But you could see, if a spouse is saying, oh, thank goodness, now I can get rid of... There's something unbiblical about that, right? You see that? Yeah. Um, another, this is the other ground that traditionally Christians have recognized is from 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is addressing the issue of a Christian who has married to an unbeliever. Now, Paul prohibits intentionally marrying an unbeliever, but what was very common in the ancient world? 
The gospel's going out, people are being saved, and what would end up happening? One spouse would be saved and the other wouldn't. And then they're joined. And the Corinthians have this question, should I divorce my spouse because am I defiled through my marriage to an unbeliever? Right? Because in the Old Covenant, you weren't supposed to marry an unbeliever, right? Because it would have a defiling effect upon you. So they're wondering if they should divorce their spouse. And Paul says no. He, in, the, in the context, he says no. If they are willing to remain in the marriage, then you remain in the marriage, right? And he appeals to the teaching of Jesus about this. But look at verse 15. He says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So the majority position is that he seems to be permitting a, a grounds permitting a divorce and i would argue remarriage whenever there's a lawful divorce it seems to me that there is a lawful remarriage these are difficult issues to sort through like i said but that's that's where i would plant my flag it doesn't seem that there would it would make sense that there would be a lawful divorce but not not lawful to remarry. But he seems to be saying that if you're married to an unbeliever and they divorce you, they're not willing to remain in the marriage, that you are free. That you're not no longer bound to that marriage. So this is where people say, God says marriage is to be lifelong. You're not to divorce. He hates divorce. But in some cases, he permits it because of human sin on the grounds of sexual immorality or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Okay, now I I know that there's a lot of questions and I just I'm going to move through this because I don't I don't want to get bogged down here and not be able to get through everything. But let me just say this, remarriage after an unlawful divorce is adultery. But if the divorce is lawful, then remarriage is permitted. And I that's what I would argue based on these texts here. Now, let me say this, what if you have someone who is unlawfully divorced and then remarried? Should they? What should they do? Should they re- divorce that new spouse and remain single or try to reconcile with the original spouse? I would say this is where, again, the church has said no. Now that marriage is a legitimate marriage, but they should repent of their unlawful divorce and unlawful remarriage and now be faithful to their new spouse. Messy stuff. You can see that uh, it's not easy to work through all these things. Okay? Let's move, let's move past. Singleness. There's nothing wrong with being single in the Bible. What's one like big way we can know that? Paul. Jesus. Most of the apostles. Well, some of them. intentionally remaining single primarily in order to serve Christ better is described as commendable in the scripture for those who are gifted to do so. Okay, now I'm going to forego the reading through this passage, but if you want to see how this has developed in Paul's argument, he says, hey, given the times, if you are able to remain single, you should do so. And then he talks about because if you're married, you're worried about the interests of your spouse. If you're unmarried, you're worried about the interests of Christ. 
And so there's a benefit to remaining single that you could devote yourself more fully to Christ. But then he says, you know, but I realize not every, everyone has different gifts, indicating that this is something that you have to be given the grace to do. And not everyone has that. And he says, you know, if you don't have the ability to do that, you should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion, etc. I would argue that Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Along with Genesis 2.18, it is not good that a man should be alone. These texts imply that marriage is supposed to be the norm for most human beings. So again, nothing wrong with being single. If you're given the ability to do so, remaining single to devote yourself to better, more devoted service to Christ is a good thing. But in general, God's intended that human beings be married and form families and build human society. After all, without marriage, what's going to happen to us? We're going to (laughs) die. And I think the strong sexual desires that God has given to human beings confirm this. Uh, It indicates that God has intended for us to get married. He's given us these desires that propel us quite strongly toward one another as human beings. Okay? So singleness. Any questions about singleness? All right. Here we go. Let's run through some of the purposes of marriage. Companionship. It's not good that a man should be alone, therefore I make a helper suitable to him. Right? Companionship is one purpose. Procreation, family, society is another. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth implies bearing not only marriage, but bearing children in those marriages. And then those families form into societies. By the way, this is one reason to tear down and destroy marriage is to tear down and destroy the very building blocks of human society. Right? Also, God has designed marriage. I always tell new couples that are about to be married, I tell them that be prepared. Marriage is the gymnasium in which God trains you as in godliness. So when you look at Paul's letters, you see he'll say, you know, wives, husbands, children, fathers, and he gives commands to each. And I tell you what, anyone who has gone through marriage and being and raising a family knows how much the Lord uses that to sanctify you in your life, to teach you. And He teaches you things about Himself. As a father, He teaches you about His own fatherhood. As a child, He teaches you about how He loves you and how, how good He is to you. As a husband and wife, He shows you about Christ's love for you as His people, right? So, it's a training ground. And then also, it's a picture, finally. It's designed. This is why we'd say that marriage is sacred, in a sense, that it has a a divinely ordained purpose to reflect God's relationship with His covenant people. And in in our dispensation, that means Christ's relationship with the church. And you see that in the way that Paul, not only in the Old Testament, where God is constantly picturing His own relationship with Israel as a marriage relationship, but now Christ is described as the bridegroom of the church. All right, so... Again, if you defile and destroy marriage, dismantle marriage, you are rebelling against something that is is sacred to God. He has ordained it 
for his glory and as a picture of the gospel. All right. Now we've left what? Ten minutes for sexuality. Unfortunately, we are going to treat it more, uh, more briefly. God has designed the male and female bodies to come together sexually and produce offspring. So when God, when it says God, he made them male and female in Genesis 1.27, and then the very next verse he says, okay, now be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? Within that is implied that the male and femaleness of humanity is designed to facilitate the fruitfulness and multiplication of humanity. And then... In chapter 4, verse 1, Genesis 4, you see how it works out. Using the euphemism of knowledge to refer to sexuality, it says, and Adam knew his wife, Eve, and I guarantee you that doesn't just mean he, he learned things about her. <laughs> he knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Okay, so this is how it works. There's a husband and a wife, and sexuality leads to conception and bearing children. So God has designed the male and female bodies to be able to come together sexually and produce offspring. God has designed the sexual union to take place between a husband and a wife in marriage. And so going back to Genesis 2.24, it says, And the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that is a reference to sexuality. So God, you say, here's sexuality introduced for the first time onto the scene of the Bible. And where is it? In the context of the first marriage. And as part of the pattern for marriage that is to be replicated throughout. A man shall leave his father and his mother and join to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is the pattern. This is where sexuality belongs. Right? So you say, where does a fire belong in your home? In the bedroom? On the kitchen counter? No, in the fireplace. You take it out of the fireplace, you burn your house down. The same with sexuality. Where does it belong? In the marriage. You take it out of the marriage, you burn your life down. Right? And so how do we know that the two become one flesh? Well, Paul, 1 Corinthians 6 Verse 16 indicates that it refers to sexual union. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. So he, in that verse, there's lots to say about that verse, but one thing is clear. He sees the one fleshness as a reference to sexual union. Okay? The goodness of sexuality. This is, again, where we have to be so careful that in reaction to the gross sexual immorality and the distortion of sexual sexuality in our culture, we don't say that sex itself is bad. No, we have to affirm its goodness. So first, it existed before the fall, right? Genesis 2 is before Genesis 3. So you know that. Also, it's the way God gives us the blessing of children. Psalm 127 verse 3 says that children are a reward from God, a blessing from God. So sexuality is the means by which God gives us the blessing of children, also indicating its goodness, its inherent goodness. It's a God-given source of holy pleasure 
and delight for married couples. So, you know, if there's ever a text that makes you blush in the Bible, it's Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. As uncomfortable as that text might make us, it's clearly using euphemistic language. It's not crude, but it's clearly affirming the goodness uh, of sexuality. It's something that we should delight in. In the context of marriage, right? The wife of your youth. And then, it's intended to be an act of mutual selfless love. So let's read 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, there's lots to be said here, and obviously this is a verse that could be easily abused, especially by husbands. It is not giving the husband free reign to, you know, demand whatever he wants sexually from his wife, but it is saying that we belong to one another and that we are to give ourselves to one another in a selfless way, not just considering our own interests, but the interests of our spouse. And that goes both ways. And so it's indicative that that selfless love that we see, for instance, in Philippians 2, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, right? Is to be carried into the marriage relationship in all ways, of course, but in the realm of sexuality as well. And then finally, sexuality flows out of and enhances relational intimacy between a husband and a wife, right? It flows out of, in other words, if your relationship is bad and you're fighting, (laughs) that's going to affect your sexual relationship. If your relationship is good, then giving to one another, yourself to one another in the sexual relationship will enhance that intimacy. Do you see? So, these are all affirming of the goodness of sexuality within the Bible. And if you want to see the the last point illustrated, just read the Song of Solomon. You'll see. It enhances the relational intimacy, but it flows out of relational intimacy. Sexual immorality. Any sexual activity other than that between a husband and wife in marriage is described as sexual immorality, porneia. And it's condemned as wrong in Scripture. So, you know, in our society, the big debate is, well, do you believe that homosexuality is wrong? And they're waiting. Because if you say that you believe it is, then you're going to be condemned as a bigot. Well, guess what you can say? You can say, actually, it's even more than that. I believe that every sexual act outside of a husband and a wife in marriage is wrong. Like, really? Right? So, that's really... This is the whole deal. By the time you get to homosexuality, you're way out here, right? We're, we're even more conservative than they thought, right? Because God is more conservative than they thought. When sexual activity within marriage is not characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, love, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, but is motivated instead by selfishness and is degrading, manipulative, or abusive, it's also sinful. 
You want to see an example of this? Just read about the shenanigans between Jacob, Leah, and Rachel laid out in Genesis 29 and 30, right? Laban says he's going to give Leah or Rachel to Jacob, dresses up Leah, and on the mar- they wait, he wakes up after the marriage night and realizes this, the different women, and then you have Rachel or Leah telling Rachel, I want Jacob for tonight. I'm going to, here, here, I'll buy him off you with these mandrakes. All that kind of stuff, right? Shows you that even within marriage, sexuality can be distorted by sin. Also, sexual immorality is not only wrong, but it's destructive. So you read the Proverbs about sexual immorality. It doesn't just say it's wrong. What does it say? It will destroy your life, right? In other words, God puts these fences up for a reason. Because on the other side is a cliff with spikes at the bottom, right? <laughs> and a fire. <laughs> so don't, don't go transgress these boundaries, not, only, not just because it's wrong, like God's really keeping us from something good. No, He's keeping you from something that's destructive because He loves you, right? Think of, this is Proverbs chapter 5, verse 3 and following. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. You could take the woman out and put the man in too, right? And just switch it around. It works just the same. The point is, sexual morality leads to destruction. But unfortunately, we have to understand that our fallen human nature desires what is wrong before God. And that includes in the realm of sexual sex. This is why we need forgiveness and this is why we need regeneration of heart. By the way, the culture argues that because your range of sexual desires come naturally to you, they can't be wrong. And we say, yeah, this is where the loss of the doctrine of original sin has been devastating to our society because to assume that whatever is natural must be good, you know, it just erases everything. (laughs) It leads to all kinds of destruction. And by the way, that doesn't even work, does it? Because even in our society, we still say that certain sexual desires are wrong, even though they come naturally to us, right? And you say, but how can that be? I'm born with these desires. Exactly. You're born fallen in Adam, right? We are born this way. (laughs) What are the implications here? Well, we must submit to God's will for marriage and sexuality because they belong to Him. He made them. We don't get to make up the rules because he's the author of these things. And we live in his world, by the way. Also, most Christians should pursue marriage as a norm for humanity by God's design. That's another thing we can learn from what we've seen. Another thing, the main legitimate reason to choose not to get married, okay, I'm being very careful here, the main legitimate reason to choose not to marry to choose not to marry. Some people want to be married and they just haven't found the right person. Or, But the main reason to legitimately not get married is to devote yourself to the service of Christ, not just to serve yourself. Is that important to say? There's a lot of people that say they view marriage as like, we would say, yeah, it's okay. There's nothing inherently wrong with being single. But if you're just remaining single so that you can serve better serve your own desires then there would be something wrong with that. Which, that happens today, right? Marriage is inherently oppressive. It restricts my freedom. 
And kids, oh man, they restrict my freedom. <laughs> Maybe someday I'll want a kid because, you know, they, that's something I want to experience too. But, you see, it's all just selfishly driven. Polygamy is not God's design for marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother. You say, well, it's in the Bible. Lots of things are in the Bible that are not endorsed by God, right? And he even permits things without, you know, David had multiple wives, and he didn't come down with fire from heaven. But that didn't mean that he was endorsing it, right? And by the way, how well did that work out for David? (laughs) Or anyone else in the Bible for that matter. Homosexual marriage is simply not marriage as God defines it. I think it's important that we be careful in the way that we speak about homosexual marriage today, that we don't even affirm that it is marriage. We might use that term if we're just describing what people mean, but we should be careful that we say, that's not actually marriage, because God tells us what marriage is. Also, lawful divorce, we've learned, and remarriage should be avoided if possible, An unlawful divorce and remarriage must be avoided or repented of. How about this? Sexuality. Christians should not think of or treat sex as inherently bad or defiling. That must be said. Christians should engage in regular sexual relations within marriage without withholding it from one another. That needs to be said, but I'll leave it at that. Christians should enjoy sexual relationships within marriage as a good gift from God. In other words, it shouldn't be viewed as just something that is only for procreation, and that's about it. That's all it's good for. Sexual relations between a husband and wife in marriage should be governed by selfless love. Christians should abstain from all forms of sexual immorality in thought, desire, word, or deed. Okay, so here, let me just read 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8 to get a taste of the sexual ethic laid out in the New Testament for us as Christians. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That's the standard. Why do I underline desire? You say, well, how can I control my desires? Well, we have a sinful nature, right? So we can't prevent ourselves from ever having sexually impure thoughts or desires. However, what does the Bible, does the Bible therefore endorse those thoughts and desires as okay simply because we can't avoid them? No, it says that even our nature is corrupt. So because we have a sinful nature, fallen desires and thoughts are going to arise, right? The the, the desire to be bitter, to take vengeance, to take what doesn't belong to you, etc., etc., etc. And sexual immoral desires are there as well. What the Bible says is, that doesn't mean they're okay. They're still sinful because we are sinners by nature. And it says that we should renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts, or that we should put to death 
the deeds of the flesh, right? So when those desires arise and thoughts arise, we can't necessarily avoid that from happening because we are sinners. We can not feed them in any way, make no provision for the flesh to obey its desires. That's, that's what sanctification looks like, is putting to death those desires. But it's important that we say that even the desire is sinful, because there are many today who would want to say that you can actually be a gay Christian. That is, God's made you with these homosexual desires, and those aren't necessarily wrong, as long as you don't indulge them. And you say, well, that's not biblical. And they say, well, but it's not fair then. You make a person feel like they're inferior if they have homosexual versus heterosexual desires. You say, no, we all have a sinful nature, right? All of us. And we all have sexually immoral desires that come out of that sinful nature of various kinds, right? I don't say if if I am afflicted with continual desires to steal, I don't say, well, I have a stealing orientation, and that's okay. (laughs) I'm a thieving Christian. We don't say that, right? We don't define our identity by our sinful desires. So we have to be clear on that point, because it is something that is a hot debate within Christianity, where we're wanting to move the lines a little bit and say, you know, you could be even a gay Christian. And we say, no, we're sinners with all kinds of corrupt thoughts and desires, and... We need to be redeemed from that. And now we identify ourselves by who we are in Christ. So Christians, lastly, should humbly acknowledge that they are sexual sinners, every one of us, who need the forgiveness and sanctification graciously provided us in Christ through the Holy Spirit. So we'll end with this passage. This is really it, isn't it, when it comes to the, the realm of how we should view ourselves with respect to sexual sin. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect in in, in terms of our desires and our thoughts, I mean, Paul said that we are to abstain from sexual morality, indicating that we're going to be tempted in that way. But we've had our sins paid for in full, we're justified, and we've had our hearts sanctified. We've been now regenerated by the Spirit and filled with new holy desires. Right, And we are to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. We're to follow the desires of the Spirit and say no to the desires of the flesh. And we long for that day when that old flesh that we got from Adam will be finally gone. No more temptation. No more sin being birthed in our hearts. So praise God for that day is coming probably sooner than we think. Our life is a vapor. Right? All right. Well, let's pray and then please feel free to come up to me with easy questions. (laughs) Father, we thank you for our time reflecting upon this vitally important, but also difficult and at times uncomfortable subject to think through. But Lord, we know that we must understand what the Bible teaches about these things and why we believe what we believe, because we face tremendous pressure with regard to these things in our society and deception 
abounds with respect to these things and error and false teaching. And so, Lord, please ground us, root us and ground us in the truth. Equip us to walk in a manner that is worthy of Christ in our day. With respect to this area of marriage and of sexuality, we thank you for these good gifts that you've given to us. Uh, We thank you that your word teaches us how to use them properly. And we thank you for the many blessings that come from them. And we pray that in our lives as your new covenant people in Christ, we would be like lights in the world, like salt in the world, showing the world how these good gifts from you ought to be lived out and used in life, that they might see the way of life and hope and be convicted and repent and be brought to Christ for sanctification and justification that we have experienced. We thank you for the fact that Christ, when he hung upon that cross, bore all our sins in this this realm as well and paid the, the price in full that we now stand clothed in His perfect righteousness. And we thank You for the Holy Spirit who gives us new desires in this regard and enables us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So, Father, we thank You for Your redeeming work in our life. Help us to be humble-hearted and not smug in in how we talk about these things uh, as Christians in the world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.